I'm Scott Matasato, the owner of Eau Claire Hometown Media. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to our podcasts that are done by locals for locals right here in the Chippewa Valley. And if you like podcasts, why settle for listening to one done by a person from, I don't know, Baton Rouge? Listen to somebody right here in your backyard. When you're done listening to this show, I recommend checking out Drive the Valley, presented by Chippewa Valley Mazda. You know Bill Bertrand from his TV commercials. Now enjoy him as he has friendly chats with some of his friends and the pillars of the area. Learn more about what is happening in town. Just head to echometownradio.com and click on the Drive the Valley logo. Hi, welcome to Full Disclosure. It's Christopher Gilliam, and uh, today I get to report to you on my first uh, park board meeting. So basically these these park boards and all these committees that are in, in various cities where wherever you live across the country, what they are is they're, they're collections of, usually there's a council member of some sort present on that committee. There's people who work within the government. And then what's, what's cool about the committee is uh, regular citizens can be on the committee too. You don't have to work with the government or be an elected official. And what they basically do, they get together about uh, whatever whatever the respective committee is, and they they put together and approve and propose ideas, and then they go before you know the council and the mayor, and and that's when they actually get enacted or or dismissed. So I got to do my first park and board meeting, and I, it was it was pretty interesting. I I learned a, a lot about it. So yeah, there that that's where a lot of that's where a lot of government happens too. It happens more in in, uh, in the board meetings and in the in the committee meetings than it does at the actual council meeting. So basically, uh, we talked about uh, Flag Hill here in Chippewa Falls, and uh, there's there's a shelter there that they're looking to relocate. It would cost them about ten thousand dollars to do it, whereas getting a new one would be about thirty thousand dollars, and that's certainly not in the budget. Uh, the possibility of internal employees basically tearing it down and uh, you know disassembling it themselves and moving it that was covered but our park employees are short-staffed so it would take two of them about a week to do it they've done it before apparently but it, it would take time from an already short-handed staff and this is when they get busy so they're they're trying to figure out okay how are we going to move the shelter and you know not let the rest of the park fall apart um the shelter itself comes from a donation so you you'd have to answer to the donor if you just scrap the thing and destroy it you know especially since it's less than 15 years old you imagine if uh you're the guy who submitted a donation for that shelter and then the city's like eh we just tore it down you'd probably be pretty pissed. So I, I think that's definitely something worth thinking about. Um, you know, whatever form this comes up to in the city, you know, for me, that'd be, that, that'd be a big deal. You know, I know if it were me, I wouldn't want my money being thrown away like that. Cause you know, why on earth would anyone else in the future ever donate to us? You know, we, we got a great park and a lot of that comes from donations. So, yeah, I, I think it's pretty obvious that we, got to keep that in mind you know whatever solution we come up with um 
one point somebody brought up is that aesthetically it looks different than the other shelters that are at the park. However, the, the place they're going to relocate it to is separated from the other shelters. So personally, I, I don't think it's, you know, worth uh, spending a bunch of money to worry about whether it looks the same or not, especially when it's not going to be right next to them. Um, I, I myself am more of a function over aesthetic kind of guy, which drives some people nuts. I'm sorry, but, you know, I save money. So if we do relocate the existing structure, it one thing to consider, too, is it takes the poured concrete two weeks to cure enough before you can even start. And that's the part that costs $10,000 as well. They have to contract somebody out to come pour concrete. And we then then it sounds like we'd have our already overwhelmed park staff do it, which you know is not ideal since they're overwhelmed. But, you know, what are you going to do when there's not $30,000 to... Uh, to spend, you know, it's kind of one of those where it is what it is. So that was one thing they talked about. Then they talked about the pool reopening plan. We have a pool in Chippewa Falls. And um, that that was interesting because normally they got 22 to 25 employees every every spring, summer for, for, uh, for the pool. This, this year so far they got eight and we're set to open in less than a month. So there's the water slide portion is definitely not going to open. We, we don't have the bodies. And um, I think this goes, you know, a deeper root of this is why on earth would you come make 875 an hour, or 850 or whatever it is, when, you know, depending on your age and your work experience and whatnot, you might be getting paid, you know, $700 a month or whatever it is from the federal government to do literally nothing right now. And um, what, what drives me nuts about that is that First off, we're we're past we're past COVID. We're you know it, it is coming down. Um, you know, and I, I posted a, a couple of graphs on my Facebook. In fact, I'll I'll link those at the bottom of uh, of the YouTube video here. Basically, showing that this not only are vaccinations up. When I checked a few days ago, we're at some somewhere over 260 million vaccine doses have been administered but we're also at the natural end of the progression of, of an epidemic you know, and, and that's all on cdc.com so you know it's it's not um it's not really something that's up for debate yet right now we have you know still millions of people in this country that are getting you know they're they're on extended unemployment benefits that just got extended till september i i don't know what we're doing it, it's time to open up and go back to normal you know it, it really is um, yeah, I personally, I think we, we botched this pandemic pretty bad. Um, you know, we were inconsistent as a country on telling people whether to do the masks or not to do the masks. You know, first it was don't do them because they don't really help, which according to several international studies is the truth. And then it was, oh, we just said that because we wanted to make sure the doctors got them first and, and no, actually do wear them. And then it was wear two of them. And, you know, then you had some governors like Kate Brown in Oregon saying, why don't we wear them forever? Which, you know, for a lot of people like me, I was like, there it is. You know, we we knew the, that that was what was coming, that somebody would have that bright idea sooner or later. Yeah, let's, you know, let's wear this forever. You know, I got a better idea. Let's uh I'll put a, how about you, Kate Brown? You put a plastic bag over your head 
and you tape it shut and you can wear that forever. Uh, I guarantee if you do that, you won't die from COVID. Um, FYI, anyone watching this, don't do that. You'll die. Spoiler alert. So, yeah. Um, anyways, the way that all that all that rant relates to our local government here is we're having a heck of a time hiring uh, anybody to, you know, go work at the pool because, you know, on top of that, it turns out we pay in the bottom five in the state for anyone with a similar program. So, I mean, that's that's definitely not good. They talked about, uh, you know, they, they, they've talked to the principals of, you know, both the Catholic high school and the regular high school saying, hey, you know, tell some of your students we're going to put people to work here. Um, We've talked to athletic directors, we've advertised on social media, and, you know, it's people just aren't reaching out. We've got eight, so somehow we're going to have to manage that. I mean, eight people isn't even enough to run one full shift, so that's not good. You know, we're, we're looking at having really minimized hours, and I guess when that happens, when you're like, why won't this... You know, why won't this stupid council open up the pool? This pandemic's over. It's got nothing to do with the pandemic. It has everything to do with not having employees because, you know, no workplace, whether it's a private workplace or whether it's a local government or nonprofit organization, whatever have you, they should not be in direct competition with the federal government who can print literally money ad infinitum you know, just forever which is literally what they're doing right now because it's a completely unfair competition and it's completely counterproductive to, you know, building a stable civilization. It, it's not, you know, they're printing more money than God's ever seen backed by nothing. And, you know, they're, they're giving it to people to do nothing. So if you're wondering this summer, why parts of the park, why parts of the water park aren't open or why we are short staffed at, at the actual park, that's why. You, you can um, you can thank the federal government for that. They, you know, and I imagine this is an issue probably all over this country right now. I don't think that's unique just to us. So, you know, again, that's the big thing I want you to take away from this. We are not going to be having likely reduced and understaffed hours at the water park because we want it to be that way. We want it to be all cylinders firing, but we just don't have the bodies. You know, so, I mean, hey, if you got a kid uh, sitting at home that isn't doing anything, uh, get them off the couch and make them apply. Have them come do something. We could use the help. So, you know, a couple other things that they talked about with uh, the pool reopening plan, you know, a little bit more cleaning for COVID. I, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's like a county mandate or something that we have to follow. I personally, I don't see the point. I mean, let's be honest about what happens at the pool. It's, you know, kids pile on top of each other, splashing all around. Some of them pee in the pool. I, I mean, if you're, if you're truly still concerned about this virus, I don't know why on earth you'd go to the pool. And I, I don't think if we clean off like one of the three counters that that's there, that that's going to stop you from catching this disease if you haven't already, or, or if you haven't been vaccinated by this point. So I'm, and I guess that that's what we're doing. You know, we're, we're going to clean, and, you know, whatever it's, I asked, you know, is that going to cause us to need more staffing? Because, you know, given what I just said, and the fact that we're already short staffed, like, is this going to up our staffing requirement? The answer I got was no, it will not. So, you know, it's, 
considering it won't up our staffing requirement, I kind of like, okay, it is what it is. You know, I'm, I'm not going to raise too much of a stink about it, even though I, I do think it is kind of silly. Um, you know, they're not going to do the, the locker rooms to minimize staffing needs and protect from COVID. I, I, I'm kind of, I, I don't know who gets a locker at the pool anyway. I guess that's just me. Maybe, you know, whatever, one year of it. Um, and then uh, we talked about the slide because the, the slide there, and I mean, that thing, it, it looks old and they're saying it has a spider web fiberglass cracks in it. You know, at, at some point very soon, we're gonna have to either recode it for anywhere from 20 to $50,000, which isn't probably isn't in the budget, or we might end up having to pull the thing, you know, cause you don't wanna run something like that until, you know, somebody ends up with a bunch of fiberglass inside of them. So, you know, that's, um, that's something we were kind of talking about and maybe there's going to have to be, you know, sort of a notice that goes out around town or something like, Hey, you know, the, the water slide, you know, we're going to end up losing it because we don't have the money. You know, maybe we have to do some kind of, you know, donation drive or something for that. Um, you know, I, we're not going to even be able to have it open this, this year anyway, because of the staffing shortage. So, Really, it's something to think about next year. But you know, if it, anybody's listening to this that you know, likes the water slide, that that's definitely something to keep in mind. Keep keep that in the back of your mind. You know, share that with people. We might be we're going to do some sort of donation to uh, you know be able to save that or replace it, or do something with it. So um, let's see. There'll be a proposal to trim staffing to bring up wages will be brought to the city council um waiting to hear more details on that what that exactly means um well that that's what that is a trim staffing for the for what's needed for for the pool employees um you know we need a minimum of 13 employees but nobody would have a day off if we did it that way so we gotta look at maybe not running lessons stuff like that um you know, and because a lot of these people are kids, we got to make sure the maximum legal hours aren't passed that, that they're working. Um, you know, and that's kind of an aside on that. You know, personally, I'm somebody that you know, if I were bigger than local government, I I think one of the worst things we do in this country is not let people under 18 work. Um, you know, that I, I think there's some states and some places where if you're 14 years old, you can only work for four hours a week, which you know, to me is insane and pointless. Um, you know, one of the arguments I make for this is, you know, first of all, you know, if you're 18 years old and you've already got four or five years of work experience under your belt, you are way more employable and you're worth way more money per hour than somebody who just got out of school you're worth more money at that point than somebody who just cut out of college and has never worked a day in their life that might be 22 years old, you know, and has never stocked a shelf, has never, you know, dropped a grease fryer, never done anything, you know. Um, I mean, if I, I'm running a company here and I've got an application from a kid who's 19, six years work experience, understands what it's like to be in the workforce versus someone who, well, I got a degree and I think I can manage your store, but I've never actually worked before. 
I mean, I'm probably going to go with the kid because I, I'm going to trust him to understand how the workplace actually works a lot more, you know, um, I'm probably going to be willing to pay him more too. the other guy. I'm going to have to teach him how to just, you know, I'm, I'm practically going to teach him how to pee on his own. So, you know, somebody with that kind of experience would be worth more to me because I, I don't have to invest as much time and energy and resources in, into training him. So, I mean, I, I think you know, I'm going off on kind of a tangent here, but I think it, one of the greatest things we take away from, from teenagers in this country is the ability to, to work. I think if they want to, they should be able to work 20, 30, maybe even 40 hours a week if they want to, you know, and as long as their parents approve it. Um, you know, I think about, I grew up, you know, a little bit about me. I grew up uh, in a poor neighborhood with drug addict parents. And um, at, at times it got really bad. And, um, you know, I was definitely an at-risk youth. You know, my you know, 14, 15, 16, I was definitely, you know, not going down the best path. And at the same time, I remember applying for jobs and I didn't have a shot. You know, there was, they the point was, is they were not, it was in California and the minimum wage law was really high as well, even, even back at that time. And, um, the, the bottom line is, is they were not going to pay a 15 year old kid, you know, a high minimum wage to come work six hours a week, you know, and, and have to go through the trouble of uh, putting up with me, <laughs> you know, they, they weren't. And in hindsight, I, I'm not sure I blame them. You know, I mean, I, I can tell you by the time I got into the workforce when I was 18, 19, I, I was definitely a worthless employee. You know, I, I was not a good worker at all. I, I don't think I would have been much better at 15. You know, however, if we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about me being able to work 20 or 30 hours a week at that time, and we're talking about an employer not having to pay me, you know, some exorbitant amount, I'm getting that experience under my belt. And later on in life, when I really need it, I'm going to be worth so much more in the marketplace. So, I mean, that's that's a big thing to me. I think um, I think kids should, you know, as long as they can manage it and you know their families involved and whatnot, I, I think they should be able to work as much as they want. You know, what's the alternative, especially if you're young and maybe you don't have the best family? You're hanging out with your friends that are in a similar boat, and you're coming up with really horrible ideas you know, that, that'll get you into trouble. Um, you're, you're better off uh, earning a little bit of money and learning how to do something with your life. Yeah, that's my two cents on it. So anyhow, now that I went off on a huge tangent that really had nothing to do with anything and was just more sharing my views with you, um, really that they, they brought up some issue also where Apparently it's possible from two vantage points somewhere in town to see into the unroofed changing areas, particularly in the men's room at the pools. So, well, that's bad. I, I guess like a tarp needs to go up or something, but um, we definitely need to do something about that. Um, I would approve, you know, a tarp or some kind of cover because you don't need that, especially on the women's side. You, don't need that at all anywhere. So, you know, and then there was an idea floated to reach out to 
with the college campuses and the tech campuses and whatnot to offer internships for the pool, you know, some sort of dressed up resume. And then uh, they brought up the Irvine Park Welcome Center. They're working on getting a canoe to the Welcome Center. They ordered some chairs, rugs, signs, etc., for animal exhibits. Plans to use zoo staff to fill some some odd uh, welcome center shifts. Staffing there is okay. So I guess they're going to use some of the zoo people for the welcome center. Uh, they reached out to a company to do concessions, but didn't get a response. So I guess as a city, we're going to provide some of our own, like bottled water. And then they talked about riverfront safety. I mean, that's that park, um, you know, obviously along the Chippewa River where, you know, every every so often, every spring and summer, somebody falls in and almost dies. And, you know, like all the cops, all the police carry uh, like the this life safety rings in their cruisers because somebody always falls in. Um, yeah, I, I guess uh, don't fall into the river. Don't let your kids fall into the river. Don't do that. Um, they discussed with the police chief um, at Kelm adding surveillance cameras and adding a PA system, especially because sometimes they have large, large uh, events down there. They got like a little um, pavilion and whatnot. So, you know, they want to have something like that to add safety, especially for wandering kids and, and whatnot. Um, you know, and they're looking into how are we going to get telecom out there? How are we going to, you know, pay for the telecom service to run the cameras since everything pretty much runs that way now and link it up to the police station and all that good stuff. And then they were talking about uh, the water fountain at Marshall Park, which uh, currently the fountain mechanics are in a confined space under a hatch under the fountain. Both plumbing and electrical is under there. The quote for plumbing is, to replace it is 1,477. The electrical quote is 3340. Uh, the reason they're looking at doing that, they're looking at getting the plumbing and the electrical out from a confined space underneath the fountain because it's it's dangerous and it's really hard to work in there. We've had people refuse to work under there because it's it makes them so uncomfortable. I work in people's homes for a living. I I do. Um, you know, I, I do work like that, and uh, I, I, I that that speaks to me. You know, I understand what that's like to work in a really weird place. And like, I've I've had a customer once, you know, tell me to crawl in some crawl space under his house that's filled with you know feces, and you know there was literally a raccoon skittering around in there, and and you you know broken glass and whatnot, and you're just like, I'm not going in there. Are you crazy? So, I mean, I, I kind of get where they're coming from, you know, a little bit of a different situation, but, you know, still, I wouldn't want to be working under something like that. Um, the quote to basically pull the plumbing in, out is 1477. The electrical is 3340. Uh, it would make everything a heck of a lot less dangerous. Problem is there's no funding for the project. Um, the idea is to get electrical and plumbing out of the confined space. Uh, basically the controls to turn it on are also under there. So that wouldn't, um, you know, that would also be coming out. And we also need a thousand dollar, uh, Joe box, to put it all in the total cost would be roughly eight grand. 
know, with labor and all. Um, the the fountain of waters plots that are paid for by by donate like by annual donators. So turning it off really isn't an option. You know, it's something we got to take care of before the thing breaks someday and we need someone to work on it. And you know, then everyone says no. That wouldn't be good. Um, city budget's coming up. Can they find $8,000 for this? Well, one way to find out. Make the community aware that the fountain could be shut down to trigger donations. That was something they talked about. Um, and then uh, a couple of the last things that came up at this meeting were uh, the Casper Park tournament fees. We're talking about sixteen twenty-five for labor in these four fields. The concessions here supposedly get less of a cut than other cities, so we have a hard time with getting concession providers here. So that was something that came up. Um, you know, maybe we have to look at a, uh, you know, not taking too much away from them, so that you know people trying to provide concessions here, so that it's worth their time. That's, I guess that's something worth talking to uh, some of the other council members about. Definitely something worth thinking about. And then uh, we got a Frisbee golf course being uh, assembled at Casper Park. At least that's the plan. Um, it's quoted at 22 grand. Uh, we're looking to fill that with donations as well. Um, I actually had a citizen guy named uh, Jeremy Smith when I was campaigning to run for this. You know, he, he flat out... Uh, he was talking about this, you know, um, he was saying that, you know, both himself and a lot of other people in this town really want a disc golf course. It's, it's a popular thing here in Wisconsin and, um, there's definitely a demand for it. I think we could definitely get the donations for it. I'm, you know, I'm sure if I reached out to Jeremy, he'd probably know somebody that's, you know, interested in donating to it. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't really touched base with him since then. I'm sure he'll be excited to uh, find out that that's something we are actually doing. Um, we, you know, also had an idea to have advertising and naming rights for specific holes on the course, you know, so that, uh, you know, basically we got some revenue coming in to provide for the course and whatnot, which would be awesome. Um, they're actually consulting with a, a professional disc golfer for the course layout. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> I had no idea there was pro disc golfers, so and that's that's pretty neat. Um, well, the rec report was that soccer is starting. Um, there's over 200 applicants amongst all the you know soccer leagues here. My three-year-old is one of those players. Very proud of him. I'm sure he's going to do well. I'm going to be proud of him no matter how many times he runs the wrong way or you know kicks the ball out of the field. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so, I can't wait. He's really short for his age, too, so that's going to be hilarious. Um, one thing that I'm very proud of with our rec department is we're notifying the public of the county health guidelines, but we're not forcing masking. We're not trying to push crazy, you know, authoritarian ideas like, I want to see your, can I see your, can I see our papers? I must see your papers to see if you've had your vaccine. Can I see your papers? You know, we're not doing anything like that. We're letting kids be kids, which is fantastic. Um, you know, personally, I think the masks need to come out of the schools, particularly since 
you know, it's been, it, it, it has been proven, you know, we're actually going to bring this up later because uh, I'm going to talk about something, you know, in the culture. And this is going to come up again, but I mean, it's it's been proven by the CDC that you know, statistically COVID is not as dangerous to anyone 20 years old and younger than the flu. A lot of people were saying, ah, it's just a flu at the very beginning. And there was a lot of back and forth. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Well, I mean, now the data is clear. You know, fast forward about 15 months later, the data is clear that if you're a kid, this thing is statistically not lethal to you. You know, no more so than seasonal flu, less so than seasonal flu. It's, you know, for somebody my age, it's, you know, about three or four times as lethal. And then, you know, it's once you get to about 60, 65 is when it starts, you know, getting kind of scary where you know, that's, that's where if you haven't had your vaccine or gotten over the illness yet, you might want to look into that. Um, you know, another thing that nobody wants to talk about is over 80% of the people that were hospitalized for COVID suffered from obesity. You know, there's, there's a very, very clear link there. Um, you know, looking back on this, since this thing's you know starting to end, you know, that's something we should be passing on to India where this thing's really starting to hit hard. You know, we should be telling those people, hey, you know, if this is, you know, if you're overweight, this would be a good time to start a diet and uh, start really thinking about eating healthy because it greatly increases your chances with COVID. I mean, anecdotal here, you know, when I had it, I was well into a, about three months into a diet, you know, had dropped 30 pounds, uh, was, was eating right, doing everything. You know, I've had common colds that hit me worse than, than COVID did, but I was eating right. I was healthy. I was, I was not, I was not overweight. Um, in contrast, one of my best friends growing up, you know, uh, two of them, actually, now that I think about it, you know, one, one down in Tennessee and, and another one, um, you know, over in Nevada, they both, uh, you know, they, they both kind of let themselves go, you know, they, you know, they got, they they both been saying they need to hit the gym again. They got COVID and it, it hurt them really bad. You know, it walloped them, you know, worst illnesses they've ever had in their lives. So, I mean, well, and what's the common denominator there, you know, both of them, you know, they, they used to both be pretty fit and now they're both overweight and it's, you know, even they themselves are saying like, I wish I hadn't let myself go. Cause I mean, this is, you know, this is not good. This is, it, it is not worth feeling like this, you know, I mean, you had a lot of people in this country, you know, I have another friend uh, in Michigan who, um, you know, he, he works out every day, very healthy, um, very on top of a very positive mindset. And, um, you know, he was like me, he, he knew exactly when he had it. And I mean, in his case, he, he was like, I, I could have kept going to work, you know, he, he had no no issues with it, but it, it all comes down to that, you know. So I think, well, in hindsight, I think what we could have done better in this pandemic is we could have been we could have been honest with people about uh, how important it is to to be healthy, you know, and to uh, you know, really watch what you put to your body, especially when something like this is going around. You know, it's it's not the first time there's been a disease that you know went around the world. It's it's not going to be the last will happen again at some point. And uh, I think having those discussions is a lot more meaningful than, you know, pretending that putting 
a dirty piece of cloth on your face that multiple international studies have said, you know, that doesn't do anything for you. I mean, the Denmark study that came out, the people who wore the mask, they got, there was a, a point zero, there was a 0.3% difference in infectivity between them and the group that didn't wear a mask. I mean, there was, you know, there was, there was hardly any difference. You know, it's a, it's a different circumstance, obviously, if you know you're sick and you have to go around. I mean, my argument to that has always been like, well, if you know you have COVID, you probably shouldn't go to the store. You should probably lean on family and friends to help you with that instead of wearing a mask. Um, you know, as far as asymptomatic spread goes, you know, to my knowledge, I never found anything on cdc.gov that confirmed that asymptomatic transmission is a thing. Um, you know, granted, this thing does spread at over three times the rate of, of the flu that I found on cdc.gov as well a long, long time ago. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I guess my whole point here is I'm, I'm glad to see that you know, our, our city is, is on the side of, you know, the actual verifiable science and that we are allowing our citizens to, you know, get back to normal life and not, you know, not trying to establish draconian laws like in some other parts of, of, of the country that are just, you know, geez, you had a, you had the governor of Oregon, you know, she, she recently tried to, she tried to pass a permanent mask mandate. I mean, that's, that's wild. You know, let's just wear this for all time. And that's, that's crazy. You know, and I mean, what if somebody doesn't? You want to end somebody's life, lock them up? They don't wear a piece of cloth on their head? Yeah, that's crazy. So anyways, you know, moving on. Um, that's pretty much it for the park board. Um, had our council meeting tonight. For the most part, nothing nothing really came up there that was all that interesting. Um, there were a couple of little side streets that we more or less uh, stopped supporting. Um, I looked at the map; they were all dead ends and little dirt alleyways. You know, there's three of them. Nobody's really using that aren't really roads anyway. So, and nothing too interesting there. Um, and then you know we had a and a man come forward and say, uh, apparently there's a new garbage provider. Um, I guess uh, when advanced and uh, what was the other one? Waste management merged. I guess they were too big and had to sell off some of their routes. So now there's a, now there's a, another, I guess there's a, there's another tr trash company. What were they called? They were called uh, uh, GFL environmental services. So more competition. I think that's always a good thing with any business. I'm always in favor of competition. Um, I'm very glad that when we had the referendum recently to uh, talk about the possibility of going to um, a one, like to, to a single provider, I'm glad that the citizens here overwhelmingly said no to that. I think that was a good thing. I think prices, maybe not right away during the initial bid, but I, I bet you anything, eventually prices go up because, and if they don't, you still, I don't think you want government setting and controlling the price on, on things. I think you want the market doing it. I think that's just, 
every time the government gets their hands in with price controls, bad things happen. Um, you know, I suppose that's a good time to segue into, I, I've been reading, uh, I've been reading some Thomas Sowell. Um, he's, you know, his, his, his whole life has been spent on economics. I've been, been reading his book on applied economics, which is, you know, fun. Um, you know, it basically takes a lot of his prior books on specific economic points, sort of ties them together and talks about what the actual application of them looks like. So, I mean, if you're, if you're kind of looking at it from, you're kind of looking at it from a devil's advocate perspective where you're looking to, uh, you know, challenge everything he says, this one's probably not the right book. You know, you, you would want some of his other books for that where he's a lot more specific and has citations and whatnot. This one's about unifying what he's talked about you know, in, in previous discussions and, uh, you know, kind of putting it under one umbrella, if that makes any sense. But, um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about with that, you know, I think it's a really good book, but uh, he has a whole section on uh, the economics of, you know, zoning laws and building restrictions. And this was very near and dear to my heart because he used California a lot as an example. And I mean, that's, that's where I'm from. That's my birthplace. And I can tell you everything you ever heard about how expensive it is out there is true, you know, and it's gotten so out of control that, I mean, if you're a regular guy, if you're not, if you're not already in, you know, the top 1% of incomes in this country, forget about moving from wherever to there. It's not going to happen. I mean, there's, you know, two bedroom duplexes in some places there that sell for over a million you know, and that's outrageous. And I mean, you have to ask yourself, why does that happen? Why does that happen when, you know, in a city like Chippewa, we, you know, if you look hard enough, you can find a you know, two bedroom apartment for somewhere between five and 600 a month, you know, or you can get a, you can buy a house. I mean, housing prices are starting to go up, but, you know, you can get a house in Chippewa for under 200,000, you know, very easily. I mean, when we bought, it was only about 150,000. And we were, you know, up by the elementary school, you know, that's, that's not bad. I mean, our house that we have now, if I were trying to sell this thing or you know, buy it in California, in a, in a crappy part of California, this place would probably be 500,000 minimum. And um, I mean, have you ever wondered why that happens? You know, the reason, the reason that that happens is because it's basically because of zoning laws and, and building restrictions. So, the more building restrictions there are, the more zoning laws you have, the more artificially scarce the actual land everything is on becomes, because you know, there's less and less and less you can do with it. And that naturally inflates the price of said land. So, I mean, when you look at San Francisco, and I mean, this is back in 2009, for God's sake, you know, you're looking at a quarter acre plot is $275,000 some parts of, you know, with, with nothing on it, you know, and that was, that was 12 years ago. I, I don't even know how much it would cost now. And, um, I mean, that's more than my whole house, you know, on hardly any land at all, you know, and all the houses there crammed together, you know, like sardines, you know, it's, it's terrible. But what causes that is, you know, unbelievably harsh building restrictions and zoning laws and, Part of why that caught my interest is because, I mean, 
something that topic could come up for me in my tenure here. You know, that is something something could come forward someday that, you know, I have to be aware of this stuff because it it can affect everybody very, very, very badly, you know. And I mean it can affect you generations down the road. You know, you have people in the that basically moved out of the San Francisco Bay Area because of skyrocketing land prices and the reason it happened is because zoning and building restrictions just are there's more there in that state than anywhere else in the country and particularly san francisco well what happened is not surprisingly all the people that don't have a lot of money you know they they fled they moved out they moved out east they moved into the valley they 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 moved out and then you have the people in San Francisco turn around, you know, and a, um, a high disparity of those people were, um, you know, were, were minorities, people of color. And then after it happened, you have the, the citizens that were still going there, that were still living there going, well, how come we don't have diversity? Well, because you literally priced them out. You made it impossible for them to live here. That's why. You, you did that with your zoning laws with, with bad ideas. So what an example of what this might look like is uh, there was one town, um, oh, pardon me, I forget the name of it, but basically a affluent neighborhood. And there was a, there was a horse, I believe in the book you talked about, there was a, there was a place that used to have horse races and uh, it, it didn't even run anymore. You know, the town was looking at tearing it down and putting something else there. And the lady comes forward, gets gets together a petition from other people in the neighborhood, says, you know, no, I want this to stay forever. And I, I want it to be rezoned as a historical building. Well, you can't tear down historical buildings. So everyone there kind of goes, oh, okay. And building stays. You know, the, the kicker is this woman never set foot in that building. And the reason... So you, so you have to ask yourself, like, when, whenever you hear things like this coming up where, you know, people come before their town boards or their councils and they want something that seems frivolous, you know, it's it's not so frivolous. You have to ask, you know, what what is the purpose of this? And in her case, the purpose was is that her home was already owned and paid for, you know, multi-generationally and um, had been rising in, in price. And, you know, she basically added two or three hundred thousand to the value of her home without doing anything but complaining because her land became more scarce see how it works so it it makes it so that if you have if you're if you already own your home outright you're making money to do nothing if you don't own your home outright or you're looking to join the community it just got a way way harder now you you had a million examples like that and you can suddenly find yourself with prices skyrocketing. You can inflate the value of the land in your community and everyone thinks it's such a good thing. Well, it's, it's not, you know, to a point maybe, and obviously you don't want a community that's a dump, but you also don't want it artificially inflated through the roof the way California is, you know, literally from, from top to bottom. You don't want that, you know, it, Eventually, that system's going to collapse in on itself because it's unsustainable. You you can't you can't do that and expect people. You know you wonder why there's homeless tent cities all over the place there today. 
That's why. That's why. Because of stupid zoning regulations and building restrictions that are completely frivolous that make land more scarce. You know, here's another one for you. You know, you've got laws in some places. We have it at the Capitol here in Madison. No building can be no building can be taller than the Capitol in Madison. I completely disagree with that. Vehemently hate that. Because once you can't spread out anymore, the only direction to go is up. If you can go up, the value of land drops dramatically. And that's very good for if you want people to be able to live in your town and, and provide economic output. What you don't want is like in Palo Alto, where back in 2009, only 7% of the police force actually lived in Palo Alto. All the rest of them had to commute. You don't want that. You don't want, you know, to get in a situation where you're commuting an hour and a half to and from work every single day. You don't want that for your citizens. You you don't want to live like that. That is that's what happens though, if enough people line up and carelessly just shrug off, you know, extra building restrictions and you know, maybe somebody comes forward one day and says, I want this section to be a homeowners association and I want all these people around us to have to do this, this, and this, and this, and I want them to not be able to do this. Well, that, you know, it might sound natural to just say, ah, I'm just going to say, okay, so that this person, um, you know, goes away and stops complaining. But, you know, knowing the ramifications of that stuff now, I, the, the answer is absolutely not. So, I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm considering that stuff now. What I don't want is I don't want to ever have this place have its prices inflated to where you know we can't grow anymore especially since we are small you know um i mean you, you already see some of that happening down in um down in eau claire you know and I, I don't think it's a good thing i think eau claire is headed the wrong direction with regard to that i, I think it's going to turn into a really crappy town i think it is turning into a really crappy town and um, they, it being certainly 10 years ago when I lived there, it wasn't, it was much better than it is now, I thought. So, you know, and I, I think a lot of that, a lot of the developments and whatnot are not necessarily a good thing. I, I don't think, um, at least not with uh, the price tag attached to a lot of it, you know, you, you definitely got to think about this stuff. And I mean, you, you look at like downtown 10 years ago, it definitely wasn't worth what it is now. And, um, you know, you have to wonder for the people that live around there, um, you know, if you think eventually that won't start affecting people up on Birch Street or, you know, down west on Barstow, it, it, it will. It will. You know, it won't be tomorrow, but I guarantee 10 years from now, you're, you're going to see some of those people start getting pushed out, out as more and more of these restrictions trickle in. It's for whatever reason, it seems to be the natural progression of these things. So, you know, in, in the future, I guess, as, as a councilman, when things like this come forward, you know, when uh, zoning laws and building restrictions are proposed, it's, you know, there's going to have to be a very good reason for me to say yes, because, you know, I, I totally get it if you have, you know, a house that you paid for and who wouldn't want to up the value of it? You know, I'd want to. I get that. 
you know, at the same time, I, I got to think about the people that are still trying to come up in life and be a part of the community. And I, I don't want to put people in a position where they're having to relocate and get forced out, you know, over the decades. So those things add up over time. And, you know, believe me, you don't want this place to be like where I grew up. You don't. You really don't. We got some special here. So, I mean, if in the future you see me being really harsh on uh, building restrictions and, you know, really pushing back against it, that's why. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of my piece on that. You know, one, um, so I said I was going to bring up the thing about vaccines earlier. Um, so something that just happened uh, yesterday, I believe, um, a YouTube superstar, uh, Steven Crowder, who he hosts a comedy news show on, on YouTube, or at least he did until five minutes ago. Uh, he's filing a lawsuit with an injunction against YouTube over a second strike on the platform, alleging that uh, the video platforming giant is unequally applying site regulations against Crowder and not allowing the reporting of actual facts about COVID, Kaya Bryant, and proven false voting addresses. Uh, the allegation here is that YouTube is systematically trying to silence a voice that more presidential election coverage had more presidential election coverage than the mainstream media. Um, and, and that's true. That, that's actually true during the presidential election coverage. And um, even during uh, Biden's first press address, uh, Stephen Crowder got more coverage than the, the top three mainstream media guys combined. You know, he's just and he's just a guy on YouTube. I, I like him personally because he he cites all his own sources. And I think if you're going to be a journalist or if you're going to be in media at all, I think that should be required. You know, I, I think it's disgusting when some of these, you know, big uh, media companies come out with these anonymous sources and, you know, the actual journalist does some digging and it turns out that one of their anchors was the source or something ridiculous. I mean, you're like, ah, you know, that's that's. That should be criminal, in my opinion. You know, that's that's not freedom of the press. That's at that point, it's like, are these people even press? What is this? You know, I mean, I have a video on this channel from back during the Georgia election law where we, you know, we went through the highlights of the, of the voting reform there, and then we compared it to what you know CNN's Don Lemon said and a couple other talking heads on the media, and it was disgraceful. You know, it was. I mean, my rule in life is most things most things that can be attributed to malice you should attribute to stupidity you know it's more likely that whatever somebody has done that's bad it was out of stupidity or ignorance rather than malice with with the media i grant an exception on that i i think it's more malice than stupidity with these people because i mean just in that example alone it was outright lies now how this all relates to Steven Crowder, um, him filing a lawsuit on this is big. I think he's the first guy to do that. We knew there was going to be a fight at some point between, you know, big tech and one of the voices being systematically silenced ever since, ever since Trump was silenced. Um, you know, I don't think a sitting president should be allowed to be silenced no matter who he is. And I don't think, uh, people trying to disseminate information should be silenced down. I mean, the allegation in the lawsuit is that uh, basically Crowder was, uh, he, he got a strike for 
having a, a one year anniversary for 15 days to slow the spread. Uh, he, uh, he got a strike most recently for this McKay Bryant video where, you know, he basically covered the fact that she was about to stab another girl. YouTube alleges that he was being uh, cruel about the death of somebody else. Um, I'm just going to come out and say it. I, I watched that episode and, uh, that's not true. It's flat out not true. Um, it never happened. Of course, you can't go and check it since they removed it. You'd have to go to his website in order and look up his podcast to actually see for yourself now. And um, they gave him a strike as well for um, showing actual um, unarguable proof of fraudulent voting addresses and you know, fraudulent ballots. You know, what he did is he took about 20 or so specific examples of people you know, of indisputably false cast ballots. He didn't, what he didn't do, he didn't come out and say the election was stolen or rigged or, you know, any, any of that stuff that YouTube has clear policies against. That wasn't what he did. He went, made a video and, you know, showed in-person addresses that where a ballot was cast that, that don't exist. You know, like one, I think one of them, the, there was a guy standing under a bridge or something crazy where he's like, yeah, this is where Google Maps took me, and uh, there's nothing here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I could technically get uh, get banned from YouTube right now for for agreeing with him based on this kind of ruling, which is which is insane. You know, I, I probably won't because I'm nobody. But you know, I mean, for now it's him. How long till it's somebody like me with, you know, I, I don't even know, do I even have 25 subscribers right now since it's uh, the beginning? Who knows? But, uh, you know, so just to be clear, these are the allegations. Um, you know, not saying that the facts that he shared about COVID were facts or anything, not saying that um, him covering Makai Bryant was um, completely accurate or correct. I would never say that. And I would never say that you know, uh, false voting addresses that were proven beyond a reasonable doubt are, um, you know, a thing or anything like that. Would never say that. So, you know, point being, I mean, I don't know. I don't feel free. Do you feel free? That's part of why I'm here doing what I'm doing. Um, I'm very interested to see how that turns out because, you know, I mean, this has ramifications, you know, given that he did a huge episode about the actual facts of COVID. He cited the same facts that I did earlier in this broadcast, you know, about um, about children not under 20 years old and younger being at less risk than they are from the flu. And and the problem with YouTube banning somebody for that or giving them a strike is that uh, that that's verifiable on CDC.gov. You know, that's not... um. It's not up for debate. It's not an opinion. It's fact. So, you know, when you have, when you have a, a when you have a tech platform, you know, able to say, you get a ban, you get a ban. Eh, we're gonna let you stay while you uh, while you uh, congratulate Hamas for firing rockets into Israel. Um, that's not good. That's that, that's a problem, you know. I'm, I mean, you see leaders in this country, like, you know, you see leaders in Texas and Florida stepping up to start to do something about it. But I mean, we have we have a long way to go. And I mean, I'm going to be following this lawsuit with a lot of interest because it's it's very important. Um, 
you know, I, he filed an injunction with it. So, I mean, what an injunction basically is, is that that's, you know, telling the courts, hey, this is ongoing, this is happening right now, and we need, we need this settled right now, because it's like, it, it we need help right now, is more or less what that is. Um, you know, trims down the time that it takes, more or less, so. So, yeah, um, anyhow, if you like listening to all this stuff, um, if you're listening on, um, if you're listening on Eau Claire Hometown Radio, I'll, uh, this around, I'll provide a link to the actual YouTube channel. You know, every, uh, every subscription and comment helps. Um, I bring this stuff, I'm going to be bringing it every Wednesday now, from now on. So figured out that trying to record this stuff on Sunday just doesn't work. Our, our, our business is just too, our business is just too unpredictable on Sundays. And I think I should have had my head examined before I decided to start doing it on uh, Sundays and presenting it Mondays. I'm going to be doing it Tuesday now after my council meeting. That way it's ready to go Wednesday morning. So that'll be it from now on. Um, you know, as I said, if you want to be up to date on this every week, you know, just go ahead and uh, subscribe to it, uh, provide the link to, you know, other people in, in town, you know, in, in the Chippewa Valley definitely helps me out. Um, you know, and I, I want to see if this gains traction. I want to see if we can get people, um, you know, I want to see if we can do, you know, a more direct news source or where you can interact you know, with your government officials more directly this way. You know, I'm hoping, you know, hey, who knows, maybe someday this turns into a trend of some sort. Who knows? But um, I, I think it's a good way to, you know, for, for us, you know, both collectively as citizens and as members of government to to fight back against the media. Um, you know, I mean, doing this, if I do this on Zoom or something, if, uh, you know, if I have an important document or something that I'm legally allowed to share, I can share it real time right here. And, you know, that really takes away the media's power. You know, say, say I was a say I was a state senator or a federal senator or something, you know, those guys get lit up all the time. You know, how big is it if uh, you can report directly to, you know, tune in live, you know, 700,000 people are tuning in live to, you know, your state senator or something. And he's showing you what's actually in a bill, like the highlights and, you know, what they're actually doing instead of, you know, some, some activist with an agenda pretending he's a journalist uh, completely lying to you the way they did in the case of uh of the georgia episode that i covered when i when i covered that bill you know the way i mean we saw that real time it was disgusting you know so i mean anyone who's watched that video knows you know you should check that one out i believe it was my fourth or fifth one i mean anybody who's seen that you know it's, it's kind of undeniable at that point what our media does you know so all right, well, I'm going to go drink some mead. So until next week, this has been Full Disclosure. Thank you for watching. <laughs>